know, it's pretty amazing the amount of information that's at our fingertips through the Internet these days. And once in a while, I'll find myself doing kind of a unique Google search to discover something I, I didn't know in the past. And so I was doing a, a unique Google search this last week, and here's what the, the search command was. I was searching strange customs from around the world. I want to share some of my favorites that I discovered this last week with you. We'll put some photos on the screen for you. Here's the first one I came across. What on earth is going on here? This is in Spain. It's called La Tomatilla. If you know these, don't give them all away. Did you do this search, Peggy? It's called La Tomatilla. It takes place every year in Spain. They use thousands of pounds of tomatoes to have the world's largest tomato food fight. How many of you think that sounds like fun? How many of you just like looking at the pictures? Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, let me show you this other one. So this one's uh, not in Spain, like La Tomatilla. This is an interesting one. Cute little girl, isn't it? We all go, ooh, ah, isn't she sweet looking? So what do we do in America? A little child loses a tooth. We take the tooth, put it under the pillow, and who comes? They don't do that over in Greece. Guess what they do in Greece? They've got this wonderful little tradition this wonderful little custom uh, the parent will take the child's tooth walk out the front door turn around and throw it on the roof interesting custom how about this third one this third one is the monkey buffet festival the monkey buffet festival takes place every year in thailand and each year i'm told it gets a little bit bigger but they take literally thousands of monkeys and bring them into town and they set up these elaborate buffet tables and even these food pyramids with thousands of pounds of fruit and vegetables and rice and they let the monkeys have at it this little guy doesn't seem too thrilled about it but he's one of the many thousands that are a part of the festival this one's kind of interesting i'm going to share with you a couple wedding uh, customs this one's called Polterra blend have you ever seen a picture like this before Bride and groom sweeping, sweeping up pieces of broken pottery. What happens is the parents in Germany, they'll take these dishes the night before the wedding, porcelain dishes, and break them in front of the house or in front of the wedding center. And so once they've broken all these porcelain dishes, there's thousands of pieces, and then they make the bride and the groom sweep them up. And so this custom, they have this evidently because they think this will help forge a unity between the bride and groom getting married. You think that's weird. How about this next wedding tradition? This one's a little scary. Happy-looking couple, don't you think? Okay, this is over in Borneo. In Borneo, in the Tadong tribe, they have this custom. The bride and groom get married, and once they get married, it is against the law, or against their tradition at least, to go to the bathroom for three whole days and nights. So once they get married, they have to hold it for three days and three nights, and the family stays close and makes sure that they're not going to the bathroom. Kind of scary. This next one you'll be more familiar with because one of our missionaries, Joel Kopong, ministers to this Padong tribe in Thailand. It's the neck-stretching tribe. How long do you think their necks actually get through this process of adding gold rings over the years? Any guesses? What do you think? Uh, six inches. You know what the answer is? The answer is 
Their necks really don't get longer. It's an optical illusion. So what's going on? They're putting these rings on their neck, and over time it's pressing their shoulders down. Their neck's not getting any longer. It's an optical illusion with the rings and the weight on their shoulders over time, compacting that lower part underneath the neck. So anyways, uh, what a blessing to know that one of our missionaries is reaching out to this particular tribe. Why am I sharing these strange customs with you? Because today, as we dive into Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at one of Jesus' customs that he developed over the early months of his ministry, and it's a custom that you and I would do well to adopt. So I want you to have your Bibles with you. Please open to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. If you're borrowing one of those blue Bibles, you'll find this on page 1018. The rest of you just open your own Bible to Luke chapter 4 as we dive into this message that I'm calling a real cliffhanger. It's going to be a good one today, a real cliffhanger. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove Jesus out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, this is once again your word that we're studying today. And Lord, I don't believe in accidents when you're involved. So we don't believe it's an accident that anyone in this room is in this room right now. We believe you wanted us here right now to hear your word, to study your word, to receive your word, because, Lord, you are writing it to us, not just to those who read it 2,000 years ago. So speak to us, we pray, O God, over these next few minutes we have in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, last Sunday we studied the first 13 verses in Luke chapter 4, and we saw that Jesus, once he had been baptized, went into the wilderness, went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, he was fasting and he was praying. And during those 40 days, Satan tempted him. We we don't have records of the temptation during those first 40 days. But Luke does record for us, as does Matthew and Mark, the temptations that took place when Jesus was finished with those 40 days and Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. Now, Mark, you can double-check me on that. I think it was just Matthew and Luke that record the three temptations. So correction there. But Matthew and Luke record that for us. And so these three temptations we looked at last week where Satan is strategically attacking Jesus at his weakest point. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, so obviously he's physically hungry. And so that first temptation, he comes to him and says, that stone that looks like a, a yummy loaf of bread there, you've got the power, Jesus. You've got the Holy Spirit upon you. Turn it into a loaf of bread. Feed that hungry body of yours. He takes them to the pinnacle of the temple, tries to get him to throw himself off because he wants Jesus to showboat and show the world what he's got, that he's got the power. It's a, a fast track to the throne. He takes him to a high peak and asks him to bow down to him. And each and every time Satan throws a temptation at Jesus, Jesus resists that temptation. He passed every single test. So Satan took off. Now in verses 14 and 15 here in chapter 4, we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside and he taught. In their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, these two verses here in chapter 4 likely summarize a number of months of ministry. Some scholars believe that these two verses are covering the better part of a year after Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't think it was quite that long, but it was certainly at least a few months. For whatever reason, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record for us much of what happened during Jesus' first few months of ministry. But John does. If you were to hold your place there in Luke chapter 4 and flip over to the right a few pages to John chapter 1, if you were to look at John chapter 1, verse 19, and go all the way to John chapter 4, verse 42, between John 1.19 and John 4.42, we're pretty sure the better part of those three chapters there record those events in the early months of Jesus' ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record. And so you'll find things in those three chapters early in the book of John that you don't find in the other three gospel writers. And so you start there in chapter 1 of, of John, starting in verse 19, and you notice that Jesus was pretty busy. During this time, it seems that he chose four of his 12 apostles. During this time, it it seems pretty clear that he performed his first miracle. There is he made water into wine at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. You look at those early months in Jesus' ministry, that's where he went to Jerusalem for Passover and for the first time drove out the money changers because he ends up doing it two times during his ministry. The second time would be in that final week before he was nailed to the cross. It's as if they said, you know what? We dealt with this three years ago with you. We're not going to deal with it again. But that first time he drives out the money changers is in his first few months of ministry. You go to chapter 3, you find the most important verse in the entire Bible. 
As Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, one of the Jewish rulers, he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That was a word that Jesus spoke in his first few months of ministry. You go to chapter 4 in John, that's that famous story of Jesus going through Samaria, ministering to the woman at the well. And at the end of two days, Jesus not only leads the woman at the well to a saving knowledge of Christ, he leads many of her neighbors to a saving knowledge of Christ as well. So Jesus is doing a lot in those early years, excuse me, those early months of ministry. So as we read these first two verses in our passage today, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, News about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Just bear in mind, as these two verses are spoken, that a lot is going on during that period of time that he quickly summarizes in those two verses. Now, I want you to notice a a few things in verses 14 and 15 here. For starters, it says Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Uh, Luke has these kind of unique aspects to his gospel writing. And one thing he tries to do, uh, even more so than Matthew, Mark, or John, is he likes to highlight how powerful the Holy Spirit's role was in Jesus' ministry. And so just in the the last few verses, early in chapter 4, end of chapter 3, you find some things about the Holy Spirit that are really important. We find that when Jesus was baptized, remember he was coming out of the water, what happens? The heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. After the Holy Spirit descends upon him, it says early in chapter 4 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit led him into the desert where he would fast for 40 days and 40 nights. So before we get to our passage today, the Holy Spirit has descended on Jesus The Holy Spirit has filled Jesus. The Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness. And what does it say here in verse 14? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree that when we do ministry in our own power, it's not nearly as powerful as when the Holy Spirit does his ministry through us? It's an awesome thing when the Holy Spirit is on you, the Holy Spirit fills you, and the Spirit empowers you to do good ministry. And so that's happening here. As Jesus is going back to his hometown, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is empowered to do miracles. He is empowered to perform signs and wonders. And he's empowered to speak God's word with absolute conviction and effect. I want you also to notice in verse 14 here, when Jesus rolled into Galilee, news about him spread Quickly, it says, through the whole countryside. Uh, Jesus' reputation had preceded him. Now, if we only had these two verses, 14 and 15, we kind of wonder how his reputation had grown so much. But based on what I shared with you from John chapters 1 through 4, it's a little more clear how the word spread. Jesus had already spoken to Nicodemus. He had already gone through Samaria. He had already performed signs and wonders and performed at least certainly that first miracle at that wedding in Cana. So the reputation of Jesus is spreading. And then the final thing I want you to notice in verse 15 is that Jesus taught in the Jewish synagogues and everyone praised him. 
So Jesus is getting into his ministry sweet spot at this point in his ministry, only a few months after he had been baptized, only a few months after he had gone into the wilderness. Jesus has more fans than foes. He's got more followers that like him than enemies that hate him. He's in this ministry sweet spot. His critics are few, but as he steps into his hometown, that fact is going to change very quickly, isn't it? His critics are going to accelerate quickly as he steps into his hometown of Nazareth. Look at verse 16 again. In verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So you know the story of Jesus born in Bethlehem but grew up in Nazareth where both Mary and Joseph were from. And so Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. His father Joseph was a carpenter. And so Jesus learned his trade up until the age of 30. Jesus himself was a carpenter. So imagine he's lived with these folks for the better part of 30 years. They knew him. They knew him. Maybe even Jesus had built the neighbors a table or or fixed their chair or helped them build their home. He was a master carpenter for the early part of his life, and he returns home. Well, a few minutes ago, I shared with you some examples of some very odd customs around the world. But notice the custom that Jesus had. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It says, as was his custom. I would never recommend that you carry out most of those customs we looked at a few minutes ago. I don't recommend wasting thousands of pounds of tomatoes in a food fight. I think that's a waste of food. I don't recommend finding every monkey in Southern California and bringing them into this room and feeding them hundreds of pounds of fruit. And I certainly don't recommend when you marry your spouse to ever, ever hold it for three days. Those are some pretty dumb customs. But this custom here, every single one of us should carry out. He went on the Lord's Day, which in his time was the Sabbath, Saturday, to synagogue. And he did this whether he was in Capernaum. He did this whether he was in Jerusalem. He did this whether he was in Jericho. Wherever he was, it was his custom that he established early in his ministry to go to the synagogue there to worship. Now, Jesus developed this custom early on. And I I think... One thing that we can draw from this clearly is that participating in a weekly worship service was a priority for Jesus. Would you agree? Participating in a weekly worship service was a priority for Jesus. Now, when you think about it, when you think about it, that's pretty remarkable. Because these days, millions of Christians around our nation come up with all sorts of reasons why they can't do what Jesus did every week. Christians around our nation by the millions come up with all sorts of reasons why they can't go and prioritize worship every week. Now, some of these reasons are perfectly legitimate. Many Christians have to work on a Sunday, and they cannot control that fact. That's understandable that they can't be in worship that day. Many Christians have health issues, and I've mentioned this before. As I go at times and visit those that are shut in, one that comes to mind is Fernando Lopez, One of our regular church attenders from past years, he's got stage 4 cancer. And as I was visiting him just a few days ago, he so much wants to be here on a Sunday morning, but physically he can't. That's certainly a legitimate reason. 
But there's so many other Christians that don't have legitimate reasons. They'll come up with uh, other sorts of, of kind of more flimsy excuses for not being a church. You know what? Uh, there's just too many hypocrites in the church. You know what? There's just too much drama in the church. You know what? Uh, I, I just don't like that pastor too much, or I don't like the music too much, or I don't like this or that too much. And that's bad enough, but many times Christians even take it a step further, and they do come up with these week-to-week reasons. You know what? And I'm just not feeling too good today. I got a little bit of a sniffle. I can't make it today. I think I'm catching a cold. You know, I I would be there today, but you know what? I'm kind of tired. It's been kind of a long week. I'm just going to rest and sleep in this morning. You know what? I I, I would be there, but you know that lady sitting in front of me in church last week, she really had B.O. And so, you know what? I, I just can't smell that today. It'll probably make me sick to my stomach. You know what I'm getting at, don't you? We come up with all sorts of flimsy excuses for not going to the house of the Lord. And I think we need a reminder that Jesus Christ prioritized the church. He prioritized worship. And we should as well. If Jesus went to worship every week, think about it. If anyone had a reason not to be in synagogue every, every Saturday, it was Jesus If anyone should be acceptable and not going, it would be him. Because think about it. Anytime Jesus would go to synagogue, he knows full well he could preach a better sermon than that guy that was preaching that day. Every time Jesus went to synagogue, you've got people that say, well, there's hypocrites in the synagogue. Well, Jesus not only knew that there were some hypocrites in the synagogue, he knew every single one of them. But he went anyway. He says, you know what, sometimes the, the scripture, I don't agree with how that's interpreted. Imagine Jesus. He knew the perfect way to interpret every passage. Certainly at times he would say, yeah, that's not what that passage means. But he went anyway. And I think he did that to a large extent to set an example for you and me. Well, when it came down to it, participating in a weekly worship service was a priority for Jesus. It was a non-negotiable in his weekly schedule. I want to ask you, can you honestly say the same thing? That attending a worship service is a non-negotiable in my weekly schedule. And I don't say this to Pat, Christine, and me on the back, but we have this practice whether we're here on a Sunday morning or whether on vacation or we're out of town, we make it a regular habit and practice. We are in a worship service somewhere. And I don't know about you, I kind of enjoy when I am on vacation, when I am in a place of, uh, that's you know, outside of town, I enjoy fellowshipping with Christians I've never met before. And there is a wonderful thing coming together wherever you might be with others who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow him too. It's a wonderful thing. I got to hear some of the stories back from Glenn and Patty as they were up in Montana, visited, what, three different churches? And that third church where they ended up visiting several weeks in a row, brand new church, new church plant. And they were able to jump right in, and they started to fellowship so quickly. Uh, One family in the church invited them to a wedding for one of their family members. That's some quick fellowship going on. Praise God. (laughs) Uh, You got a point there. Is it a non-negotiable for you? Because it certainly was for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It's such a good passage. The writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more 
as you see the day approaching. So I was meditating on this scripture last week. I was reading it several times and thinking about the meaning for us today. And I couldn't help but think that Jesus is trying to communicate to us today in 2018. Today, on October 7th, 2018, we are closer to Jesus' return than ever before, aren't we? And today, as each day goes by, our world gets darker and our culture gets darker and more depraved and more evil. You've seen what's been going on. You've heard what's been going on over the last few weeks with the Kavanaugh hearing. Our country in so many ways is in pandemonium. Republican against Democrat, fighting like cats and dogs, throwing out every name in the book, pounding on the doors of the Supreme Court building acting terribly, and the motive might be good, but the execution is terrible. We live in a day and age where we look at our world around us, and it's not getting any more righteous. It's not getting any more holy. It's becoming more depraved, and what would have caused us to blush just 10 years ago, we're not supposed to blush today. In fact, if we blush today, we will be called one of those vicious and nasty names. We still live in a day and age where over a million babies are aborted in their mother's womb and half the country wants to stand and yell and cheer for those that carry on such practices. We live in a pretty warped time, and I believe in this passage Jesus is making it so clear. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Why? Because my return is closer than it's ever been. And number two, because this world is darker than it's ever been. In other words, folks, we cannot play around with church. We don't have the luxury of popping in when we feel like it. We don't have the luxury of trying to do Christianity on our own. We need each other. The church needs you. And you need the church. Jesus says, I made it a priority for me. Make sure that you make it a priority for your family as well. Verses 16 through 21 here in Luke chapter 4 provide us the earliest record of what a synagogue service looked like. We have some records of what synagogue services looked like a few centuries later. But this is the earliest record of of what a house of worship service looked like in Jesus' day. Now, it's kind of interesting. I'd forgotten this. One of those things I may have learned years ago, but had long forgotten. Synagogues were a recent thing in Jesus' day, or at least comparatively with the history of the Jewish nation, a fairly recent thing. They'd just been around for about 500 years. During the Babylonian exile, remember in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon. He tore down the walls around Jerusalem. He burned the temple to the ground that Solomon had built. And he hauled off thousands of those Jewish people, especially ones like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He hauled them across the desert to Babylon. And during that 70-year exile in Babylon, they didn't have the temple anymore. They weren't in their homeland of Israel anymore. So they began to develop these local houses of worship in their towns there as they settled in Babylon. And they called these houses of worship synagogues. And when after 70 years they moved back to Israel, eventually they were able to rebuild the temple, but they continued that tradition of building these synagogues in each of their towns. And as long as you had 10 married Jewish men, you could establish a synagogue in your town. 
And so it kind of boiled down to this. Once the temple was rebuilt, the temple was for sacrifice. The synagogue was for teaching. And so the temple's main purpose was to come and sacrifice those animals and try to make atonement for sin. But the synagogue would be your local church building where you receive that teaching from God's Old Testament word. And so it was a place of teaching. And we look at the example here and we fuse that together with the example several centuries later. And it seems like this would be a basic order of service there in one of those synagogue services on a Saturday. The Jewish men would come together in particular in the synagogue. And it would start, the synagogue service would, with an invocation, and an opening prayer. They would have someone stand up, one of the male leaders, to give an opening invocation. After that, all of the worshipers together would recite the Shema. Remember that the Shema is the core of Old Testament teaching. There in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That Hebrew word shema means hear or listen. And so that was the core of Old Testament teaching there in Deuteronomy 6. So every Saturday, the Jewish people and the Jewish worshipers would recite the core of Old Testament teaching. After reciting the Shema, some other leaders would get up and lift up some more prayers. And after they lift up some more prayers, then they would have some volunteers read from the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, that target, that core section of Old Testament teaching. And so they'd read from Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. After a few people read from the first five books, then a few others would read from the prophetic books, prophetic books like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And here's where it gets interesting. Someone that would read from one of the prophetic books would also be asked to give an exposition on that passage they just read. Think of it as a sermon. And so in those days, oftentimes because they didn't have pastors, they would have some synagogue rulers. They would have some rabbis maybe that would come in and out if they were traveling into town. And so oftentimes it would be a rather last-minute thing just getting some trusted Jewish men to read these scriptures or a visiting rabbi to give that exposition. And so what seems to be taking place here is Jesus comes into town. They hear that Jesus is there. They'd known him for the better part of 30 years. He'd helped to build their chairs and repair their tables. Jesus comes into town, and for several months he's been building this reputation throughout Israel as one that was starting to perform miracles, that was a powerful preacher. He had gone to Jerusalem and caused a stir. And so word had traveled back to his hometown. So when Jesus comes into town, they begin chattering, Hey, Jesus is back. Have you heard those rumors? And so when the Sabbath day comes and Jesus comes into the synagogue, one of those synagogue rulers or visiting rabbis said, Hey, let's let the hometown boy give the exposition today. Let him read from one of the prophets and let's hear what he has to say about it. So that seems to have been what happened here. And so Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. Now we don't know for sure if he asked for the scroll of Isaiah or this just happened to be the assigned text for the day. But one way or another, he's handed the scroll Isaiah. He opens up to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads verses 1 and 2. 
at least he reads most of verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what does Jesus do after reading those words? Rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. So why would he do that? In those days, in synagogue services, you would stand to read God's word, and you would sit to give the exposition, to give the teaching. And so as soon as Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, the reason it says that every eye in the synagogue was fastened on him is because when he sat down, that was a verbal cue, I'm about to start my teaching. And because of all those rumors that had spread about Jesus, all the the, the things that had spread from all over Israel about what Jesus had been doing and what he'd been teaching in recent months, everyone in his hometown couldn't wait to hear what the hometown boy was going to say. And what does Jesus say as he sits down? Verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you look again at verse 22, you'll see that at first, the crowd was very supportive. This has always been a a curious verse to me because it seems like they're excited about Jesus. And without even getting to the end of that verse, all of a sudden they're starting to turn on him. And so I've tried to wrap my mind around what's going on here, but certainly at first the crowd is supportive. And so this is kind of what I, I think was going down here. They must have been thinking to themselves when Jesus read that passage, preach it, Jesus. They loved this passage. This passage in Isaiah chapter 61 was a very well-known passage to every Jew in that synagogue that day. It was a popular love scripture because they all believed it was a scripture that clearly applied to the coming Messiah, the Christ, the one that would come and deliver Israel. And so when someone would stand up and remind them that the Messiah is coming, and today he is a week sooner in coming than he was a week ago at the last synagogue service, he is soon in coming. The people would be excited. Yes, we agree the Messiah is coming. Yes, we want him to come. He is our deliverer. He's going to be king of the Jews. I love this passage, Jesus. It's as if a guest preacher comes in and starts preaching about John 3.16. It doesn't matter who the guy is or if you've ever heard him preach before. He starts talking about John 3.16. We get a little excited, don't we? Someone steps up and starts preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. We start getting a little excited because we love that passage. Whenever I start talking about my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose, I I can almost guarantee whenever I share that verse with you, the room starts to get a little more animated because we love that verse. We need that verse. It encourages us. Similar thing here. He reads from Isaiah 61. He sits down and says, today it's fulfilled in your coming. Yeah. Good job, Jim. We like this passage. We like this passage. But then it sinks in what Jesus had just said when he sat down. Today. Did I hear you right, Jesus? You're saying not next week, not next month, not next year. Today? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In our hearing... So you're not talking about this scripture being fulfilled in Jerusalem, which is the capital of our 
wonderful country of Israel. You're not talking about this being fulfilled in Jericho or fulfilled in Bethsaida or any of these other. You're saying it's fulfilled today right here in little bitty Nazareth. And so as the truths are beginning to sink in, they don't like too much what they're hearing. And and they begin thinking to themselves and talking amongst themselves, the carpenter boy that we've known for 30 years is actually saying that he is the fulfillment of Scripture And he's actually saying that he is the promised Messiah. They had a problem with that. They had a problem with this scripture somehow being fulfilled in their podunk little town of Nazareth. And they had a problem with Jesus saying that he was the Messiah who was promised in this scripture. And they had another issue with it. This one's a little more subtle. If you were to go back and look at that passage in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you'll notice in verse 2 that Jesus didn't quote the whole verse. He quotes the first part of verse 2. He's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what that meant to the Jewish people? It meant the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, according to Jewish law, every 50 years would be the year of Jubilee. And in that year, every land parcel in Israel would revert back to the original ancestral owners and their descendants. It didn't matter if you owned a land every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, it would have to go back to the original owners. And it was a year where slaves would be released. And it was this wonderful year of celebration. So they understood in Isaiah 61 verse 2, when the Messiah comes, it will be a year of jubilee for the Jewish people. But right after that phrase, also in verse 2, it says, not only will it be the year of jubilee, but it will be the day of vengeance of our God. So the Jewish people love this scripture because not only did it say when the Messiah comes, it will be a time of jubilee for the Jewish people. They believe that next part, it would be a day of wrath for their enemies. And in their mind, enemy number one was Rome. So they were looking for a military Messiah. And they kind of had a beef with Jesus stopping partway through that verse. He says the year of the Lord's favor and rolls up the scroll instead of saying the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So they had a problem that Jesus said it was being fulfilled right there in Nazareth. They had a problem with Jesus saying he was the Messiah. And they had a problem that he didn't finish the verse. And so they start to get a little agitated here. The crowd in the synagogue, they went from being amazed to being offended. They ask each other, isn't this Joseph's son? And within a few short minutes, the crowd is getting pretty ticked off. And Jesus sees the tempers kind of rising in the room, and so he continues in verse 23, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, miracle worker, why don't you start showing us some of those miracles we've heard so much about that you performed in Capernaum? Why don't you do something amazing like you did in Jerusalem when you drove out those money changers? Why don't you turn some uh, water into wine here in the Senate? Why don't you show us some of this stuff? Because we're not buying this whole bit about this scripture being fulfilled today. And we're not buying this bit about you being the Messiah. And we're certainly not buying this bit that you have the authority to stop halfway through a verse. And so show us something, Jesus. Show us something. He says, certainly you're going to quote this proverb. Do something. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And then Jesus makes a bottom line statement in verse 24. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So much meaning is in this verse here. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. As I was thinking about this this past week, my heart kind of goes out to some of you. 
who have given your life to the Lord. And when you go to share your testimony about how you came to Christ, the fact is, for some of you, strangers will listen to your testimony and receive your testimony quicker than your family and friends that have known you for years will. That's sad. Sometimes our family members in our immediate household don't want to hear our testimony. Some of you have come out of a lifestyle of addiction. You've got a powerful story of how you were wrapped up in drugs and alcohol for many years, and God brought you out of that, and he delivered that. And the last person that wants to hear you share your story is one of those family members you've known all your life. The last person on this planet who would believe that you are truly changed, that you're truly clean, that you're truly sober, in some cases is a spouse or a parent or a child. That hurts. And Jesus quotes this proverb to them, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He gives two quick illustrations of this. Elijah, that Old Testament prophet in 1 Kings, was sent by God to a Gentile widow in Zarephath. Zarephath was not an area that the Jewish people liked. It was not Jewish territory. It was a place of pagans. And Elijah the prophet was sent to this widow in Zarephath, not to a widow in Israel. And then with Elisha in 2 Kings, Elisha, uh, we only have record of him healing one single leper, and it wasn't a leper of Israelite descendant, descendants. Uh, it wasn't uh, 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 an Israelite at all. It was a pagan that was an enemy of Israel, Naaman the Syrian. And so by the time Jesus finishes giving these two examples of strangers who were more receptive to God's blessings than were the Israelites, the Jews in the synagogue, they're fuming at Jesus. It was bad enough that Jesus was claiming to himself be the fulfillment of Scripture, but talking about Gentiles winning God's favor before the Jewish people won his favor, that was absolutely unacceptable to them. St. Augustine offers this insightful reflection. He was one of the early church fathers in the early centuries of Christianity. He wrote, They love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth. When it accuses them. Similarly, Christians today love to hear sermons filled with gracious words, but we're not so excited about hearing sermons that are convicting, sermons that tell us to repent or face the consequences and judgment of God. Many of us quickly attack and reject sermons and the pastors who preach those sermons when those sermons get a little too close to home. Verse 29. They got up, they drove Jesus out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. What a bunch of sweethearts. They really loved Jesus, didn't they? I want to put an image on the screen for you. This is the actual cliff that overlooks the town of Nazareth. If you were to go to Israel and uh, take a biblical tour through Israel, this is likely uh, one of the stops you'll make. It's called Mount Precipice. And this mountain overlooks uh, not only Nazareth, but it overlooks a broad sweeping area of Galilee. So when those tour guides will take you up on Mount Precipice, they'll point to various mountains in the distance and the valleys in between those mountains and identify specific biblical stories that took place on those locations. But this is most likely where, where Jesus was taken. One thing I love about this picture is Matthew McWilliams somehow slid into the left side of this photo. 
Matthew, is that you? Kind of looking like you, man. Little photo bomb in, uh, in Nazareth. Anyways, they go up on this mountain, and they're ready to push Jesus off the cliff. They're ready to push him off this cliff. It would have been a drop of several hundred feet. It certainly would have led to death in any normal person. And so it's interesting that Jesus is just making his way through the crowd when they're trying to push him off the cliff, and he moves on from Nazareth, and as best we know, he never comes back. Kind of interesting, I think, one of the commentaries that pointed out that what goes on here with the people of Nazareth is really mimicking that third temptation that Jesus was given. That third temptation he was given earlier in the chapter when he was taken up to the the pinnacle of the temple. And remember, if it was the pinnacle of the temple over the courtyard of the priest, that would have been a drop of 150 feet, some 15 stories. And the devil is saying to Jesus, just do a swan dive off the temple in plain view. Let everybody know that you've got this power. Let everyone know that you're the Messiah. Let's fast track this thing to the throne, Jesus. And what happens here in Nazareth? Jesus is given much the same temptation. These people are, un, are, are falsely accusing Jesus. They're slandering Jesus. They're angry at Jesus. These hometown folks are wanting to push him off a cliff. That would have been a golden tempting opportunity to not only jump off the cliff, but gently float down like Mary Poppins. We ask the question, could Jesus defy the laws of physics? Is there any evidence that if Jesus had jumped off that cliff, he could gently slide or glide to the ground below? Is there any evidence in Scripture? The answer is yes. I remember a certain sometime when Jesus was walking on a lake. If you didn't realize this, that's impossible. You cannot walk on a lake that defies the laws of physics. It defies the laws of gravity. You cannot walk on the lake, but Jesus did it. Why? Because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and he was the Son of God. So Jesus had that same power later in his ministry at his disposal right here. He could have jumped off the temple pinnacle and been fine. Satan knew that. That's why he was tempting. And Jesus could have jumped off that Nazareth cliff and he could have impressed every one of his hometown neighbors. But Jesus didn't do it, did he? Why? Why didn't he do it? Because Jesus and God the Father had already decided that he wasn't going to take the quick and easy path. The path of showboating, the path of being a glory hound. Almighty God had chosen the slower, more humble path of the cross. Jesus chose the path of the cross, and I'm so glad that he did. It wasn't flashy, but it saved my life. The path of the cross wasn't flashy, but it saved your life. Now, I just, I just want to say to you today in closing that the path you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life has never been and never will be flashy. Teenagers, you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. And as you go into your college years, as you go into your career, as you go into marriage, as you go into your adult years, it's not flashy following Jesus Christ. But it's the best way to live. It saves lives. And Jesus Christ, I think, does such a wonderful job in this passage 
setting example after example after example for us. We go to church not because worship is flashy, but because Jesus Christ has called us together to serve him and change this world for Jesus Christ. And as we live each day of our lives for him, I'm so proud of you that live each day of your life for Jesus Christ in a family that does not support that decision. I'm so proud of those of you who live every day for Jesus Christ among co-workers who think you're nuts for spending your time in God's Word and spending time serving Him. I'm so proud of those of you who come week after week knowing that we'd love to have every chair in this room filled, but you can't ultimately make anyone else come, but you can make sure you're here to the best of your ability. I'm proud of you, church. I thank you for serving Him faithfully. What you do is not flash flashy at all. It's not flashy in the least. But as we serve Jesus Christ faithfully, we can be guaranteed that one day we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, thank you for setting us so many wonderful examples in this passage. And Lord, how it must have hurt to have known that you had lived for some 30 years among those people. You hadn't committed a single sin. You had obeyed God's word with absolute faithfulness. There in that synagogue, you spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But despite all that, they rejected you and wanted to kill you anyway. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your steadfastness. Thank you for your examples that you have set for us. Help us to faithfully follow in your footsteps. In Jesus' name.